Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld will continue in his series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled, Righteousness or Personal Advantage. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 16, as we join Dr. Neufeld now. There is a very alluring and seductive appeal that we must resist with all the strength within us. It's the appeal to choose personal advantage over righteousness. You know, on a national level, we witness this struggle in politics every single political season. Politicians, well, and the people who vote for them will often place personal advantage far ahead of what's right and good. But don't you find it's far too easy to blame the politicians? I mean, after all, it's very easy to identify those who seem self-serving at a distance. And yet, isn't it amazing that we who despise them, well, we voted for them. That's because we who vote for them are very much like them. We, like they, all choose personal advantage over righteousness. So let's examine this on a personal level. Imagine the person who might lose their job if they do what's right. Imagine the teenage girl who's told that the only way to be popular is to have sex. Imagine the person who's a sales executive who believes that bending the rules adds to the profit margin. Imagine the person who has a chance to pay someone back for the wrong they've inflicted. And now they've got to decide whether to act in revenge or in grace. Will they choose personal advantage or will they choose righteousness? See, what I'm saying is this. There are thousands of ways in which every single person faces this choice every day. But here's another feature. When many of us make the choice between righteousness and personal advantage, we often find that the choice is not one of our own making. Rather, the, the choice is suddenly thrust upon us. I mean, consider the person who might lose their job if they do what's right. I mean, almost always, the person who must choose never would have chosen to be put into that situation in the first place. They didn't want to have a crisis at work. What they really wanted is to have a job and then to get home. But suddenly, events that they didn't plan on tumble into their laps, and now they find that they must choose. Well, that's exactly what happened to Abram. Genesis 14 describes a wider political and military situation in Canaan and an event that involves war and regional finances and a great power struggle that on the surface of it has nothing at all to do with Abram. But suddenly, without planning it, Abram is suddenly thrust into the middle of it, and what he chooses to do determines whether or not he will trust in God. So let's read the text. I'm reading Genesis 14, verses 1 to 7. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Chedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedarlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakiriathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. 
Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hatzatzon Tamar. Now, normally when the average Bible reader reads that kind of thing, I mean, the eyes just glaze over. This seems to describe something about kings of cities long since forgotten, political realities that don't matter anymore, and battles that have receded into history. Since we know nothing about it, we tend to ignore it when we read it. But think of it this way. What is being described is happening in Abram's backyard. He's been called by God to leave his country and to go to the land that God has promised, and suddenly he finds that the kings that come from the land that he left are invading the land of Canaan, and he finds wars raging around him. Four kings are invading Canaan. The first is from Shinar, which is also known as Babylon. The next three kings from Elassar, from Elam, and from Goim are names of cities that we can't identify with certainty today. That's because depending on which language you're speaking, the names of the cities and the kings vary greatly. I mean, look at it this way. If you're English and are speaking about Germany, well, we know where that country is on the map. But if you're in Germany, you don't call your country Germany. You call it Deutschland. And if you live in neighboring France, you're going to call that country Alamein. And furthermore, if you go back in history, you might find that the same region was once referred to, well, as Saxony or even the region of Prussia or maybe down south in Bavaria. I know it's complicated, but we all know that it's so. And so from this side of history, we, we can't be absolutely sure exactly where those four kings in Abram's day came from. But we do know that they came from the region around the Euphrates River, somewhere from the region that Abram originally came from, known as Mesopotamia. Well, it turns out that the kings from Abram's homeland controlled the trade routes in Canaan and imposed heavy taxes on the kings who were in Canaan. I mean, this had been going on for 12 years, but in the 13th year, the kings of Canaan said, well, that's enough. We aren't going to submit to these foreign despots any longer. And that, of course, meant that war was on the way. Now, the four kings from Abram's homeland started to invade Canaan. One city after another fell to the superior military forces of the four kings from the east. And just when it seemed that all was lost, five local kings from Canaan, which included the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the region where Lot lived, joined together in order to fight. So let's keep reading Genesis 14, verses 8 and 9. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasser, four kings against five. See, the day of reckoning was at hand. Five local kings were arrayed against the four kings from Mesopotamia, which is Abram's homeland. The place of the battle was no doubt to the south of what we now know as the Dead Sea. So we can imagine, perhaps from movies that we've seen or books that we've read, how difficult it would be to coordinate a battle in which nine different kings are giving commands to two different sides. Now, the Bible doesn't describe the strategies of the battle or how it was fought and won, only that the event happened. We also know that what was at stake was who was going to control the southern area of Canaan. So let's continue to read in verses 10 to 12. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. 
So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. See, whatever happened on the battlefield, one thing is clear. The five local kings lost badly, so much so that their armies were totally routed and many a man was lost in tar pits that were everywhere. It was a total disaster. Indeed, it was so bad that the defeated armies had nowhere to regroup and whoever survived the battle simply ran to the hill country, leaving their local cities completely undefended. The four kings from the east easily entered into the local cities in southern Canaan and took everything of value that they could carry, utterly bankrupting those cities, but they weren't done. They would have killed anyone who looked dangerous and would have taken others as slaves. And here now is where Abram comes in. Lot, Abram's nephew, has been taken as a slave. You'll remember well that it was Lot who argued with Abram where to graze their cattle and Lot who had insisted that he would take the best and leave Abram with whatever open grazing land was left over. See, I wonder if Abram ever felt bitter over Lot's betrayal and his lack of thankfulness. I wonder if Abram ever pondered how he would be the heir of the land of Canaan when Lot was beginning to develop deep claims in the land that God had promised to Abram. See, I wonder if Abram ever struggled with bitterness or the lack of thankfulness that he had seen in his nephew Lot. I wonder if Abram ever wanted Lot just to go away. And now in a series of events beyond his control, Lot was taken as a captive of war and it would seem that all of Abram's problems are solved, or were they? Suddenly Abram is confronted with a choice. I mean, what shall he do? Shall he do what's righteous or shall he do what's in his own personal advantage? And how shall he resolve this matter? In Doubt exists to bring the gospel to the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. Through a weekly radio and podcast show where I, Ryan McCurdy, will be your In Doubt host, talking with recognized Christian leaders on various subjects about how young adults can integrate their faith into today's culture. In Doubt also has weekly blogs, Bible studies for individuals and groups, and live events. And the best part, it's all for free. So why the name In Doubt? Well, because many young adults find themselves literally in doubt, divided, and asking tough questions. This isn't just with reference to their faith, but with many things. Our hope is to help young adults face their doubts and provide these gospel-rich principles, truths, and applications to help them think critically and biblically. Want to find out more information? Visit us online at indoubt.ca. I wonder if you've ever had good fortune fall into your lap only to wonder what it all meant. I mean, what should you do if your enemy falls into a pit? What if your rival suddenly suffers a bad turn of events? What if the one who took advantage of you loses all that he has? You know, most of us would say, you know, he got what was coming to him. 
Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Three verses later, the Bible says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. See, the teaching's plain. Don't take revenge. Leave justice up to God. Treat others the way that you would want to be treated. Never look on the downfall of your enemy with joy. See, I'm not saying here that Lot had become Abram's enemy. I doubt that Abram ever thought of him that way. He may have thought of him as ungrateful, you know, as a young man who never saw the value of God's promises, even as someone who had acted foolishly. But of one thing we can be sure. When Lot told his uncle he would take possession of the richest farmland in that region and leave his uncle with that which was left, Abram never responded. He let Lot do what he wanted. He left the matter to God. But now it might have seemed that God had answered. Abram's Lot problem was fixed when four invading kings took him away. But Abram never thought that way. Let me explain a part of what happened. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to 8 contains a warning about rebellion and lawlessness. And then, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter describes Lot's experience while he's living in the region of Sodom. Peter calls Lot righteous. In other words, Lot did not participate in the sexually sensual conduct that was going on in that city, nor in the region. Furthermore, Peter describes Lot as being tormented in his soul by the evil surrounding him every day. Indeed, we need to be very careful when we're thinking about Lot that we don't see him in a one-dimensional way. Yes, he may have chosen the best farmland and took care of himself over his uncle. Yes, he may have been unable to see the value of the promises of God. But Lot was not a man who was given to evil. And here's a common problem that afflicts some of us. After we've been deeply disappointed by some people, we have a habit of casting them in an entirely negative light. See, we crowd out of our minds any sense that our monodimensional view of the other is correct. Our attitudes are now set, and in this we're often wrong. See, when we last read our text, the four kings of the East had utterly defeated the five local kings, and they'd plundered their cities, and they'd made off with a number of their people, including Lot. And so let's pick up the events here. Genesis 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. Now, before we move on, I, I want to make sure that we don't miss something significant here. Notice for the first time in the account of Abram that he has achieved a title. He's called Abram the Hebrew. And however we make of that title, this is, in fact, the first time in the Bible that the word Hebrew is used. It's, it's clear that Abram is now recognized as the leader of a clan. He is viewed by the people around him as a force to be reckoned with among the nations. He's, he's no insignificant single wanderer. He is, in a sense, a clan leader, a designation just below a king or a leader of a tribe of people. The second thing we notice is that Abram is not only a force to be reckoned with, but that he has by now established several important and powerful allies in the land. We're told of a man named Mamre the Amorite, and the Amorites were a small ethnic group that lived in Canaan, and clearly Abram has formed a relationship with them. Three brothers, Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner, no doubt clan leaders themselves, had some form of agreement of support with Abram the Hebrew. And so when we now encounter Abram, it's, it's quite clear that he has established a presence in the land. 
So at any rate, it is to this Abram, this man not to be trifled with in the promised land, that a refugee from the war comes. Your nephew Lot has been taken captive, he says. So let's continue to read verses 14 to 16. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So at this juncture, we get another picture of Abram. Not only has he become a significant tribal leader in Canaan, but he's also noted for his military prowess. After all, he enables his trained fighting force very quickly, and he marches them north, divides his small fighting force into strategic units, and conducts a brilliant night raid on the unsuspecting large army that has just defeated five local kings. Now, in truth, we have to imagine that the first battle, that is, the battle of the four kings of the east against the five local kings, well, this battle would have been a very traditional battle drawn up with traditional battle lines. And Abram's fight was far different. It's it's a kind of a guerrilla warfare. See, by now, the four kings of the east are feeling fairly secure, and they have their hands full, dragging possessions and captives, something that's taking all of their energy. And no doubt, Abram caught them completely by surprise and maximized the strength of the surprise raid. You know, one has no doubt that he inflicted heavy casualties on his enemies who would not have had even the slightest idea who was attacking them or the size of that force. And and in consequence, Abram utterly devastates the four kings of the east, driving them to their home in utter shame and taking all their plunder. And in consequence, one has to believe that Abram has established himself as one of the leading powers in Canaan. And so we see that he has gone from being a wanderer and a stranger to becoming an established tribal leader whose military strength has to be respected. You know, furthermore, as we're going to see in the next section, Abram returns from the plunder of five local kings, showing himself to be a man who is capable of blessing the local kings. They are now in his debt and not the other way around. Everything that the local kings had failed to do, he has accomplished in one brilliant night raid. His reputation has suddenly risen dramatically. And all of this so that he might rescue his nephew Lot. See, part of the lesson to consider is the lesson taken from God's covenant with Abraham, recorded all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. God had told Abram that he would be the source of blessing to the world, and furthermore, Whoever cursed Abram, God would curse him. See, the kings of the east, by taking Abram's nephew in captivity, had in fact cursed Abram. And in consequence, those four kings had been cursed. God was showing that he keeps his word. And I think this is the point. The reason why Abram could be so free to care for the interests of Lot, even while Lot had not acted graciously toward his uncle, is that God had so blessed Abram that Lot's greedy action was but a small thing to Abram. Look at it this way. Imagine for a moment that you're a billionaire and someone has taken advantage of you and has stolen $500 from you. Now, how big of an infraction is that? I mean, really. In the same way, consider Abram's wealth if it is to be measured in the strength of God's promises. His descendants will be as the dust of the ground. His land is Canaan. His legacy is going to bless the whole earth. No one is as wealthy as Abram. 
The reason he can afford to be as gracious and as generous as he is, is because he can afford to be gracious. And you, my dear listener, if you're a child of God, have you even for a moment reflected on the vastness of the wealth that you have received through the secure promises of God? You are wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. Why can you be gracious to your enemies? It's because of this. Your grace to those who offend you never impoverishes you. How can you be impoverished when you possess lavish wealth? And the lesson is actually quite simple. Bless those who curse you for, well, you can afford it. You can choose righteousness over personal advantage for in God, your personal advantage has already been secured. You are in fact only blessing others out of an abundance that is far greater than what they have ever taken from you. John, this has been a great message and a great reminder to me, almost a lesson, I guess. Uh, and you know, as you're reading that passage of scripture with all those sort of 14-syllable names and words and all those types of things, not only was I admiring the fact that you could do it, uh, but I was reminded that there's nothing in God's Word uh, that doesn't have a purpose and a meaning, something that, that God wants us to understand. Yeah, I mean, two things. I mean, first, I don't know whether I really did it because I'm guessing at a lot of pronunciations, and I think you ought to know that, and I and I think everyone else does as well. So it really is okay for us to work our way through some of the words that we find difficult to pronounce and just do our best. I mean, that's fine. I think the second thing is that really the point that you're trying to make, and that is, you know, what do we do with those sections of Scripture that has genealogies or that explain events that seem so distant from us? I mean, is it worth our while to work our way through that? And yeah, I mean, you've, you've put your finger on it. It really does make a difference when we take the time to understand because those difficult passages are often the best passages to locate something historically and culturally, and it, I think it becomes alive when we understand it because suddenly we get a sense of, oh yeah, this is what was going on. It, it will suddenly make the Scripture live in a way that it couldn't before. And I guess the other thing I come away with is the fact that we just can't outgive God. Yeah, there's that. Isn't that isn't that the case? I mean, you know, this 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 wealth that Abram has, and it's important for us to say that, you know, God doesn't promise that believers in Christ would be wealthy, that is, in this world. But he does promise that our wealth is a wealth that is an eternal wealth. And so we should count on that. And we should think of ourselves as believers in Christ, as wealthy men and women, for indeed we are, if we could only see it. A great message, a great word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld can be seen weekly on Joy TV, on YouTube, or online at truthinlifetoday.com. Take the opportunity to join Dr. Newfeld this month as he continues one of his most in-demand series on the topic of heaven. This series clears up so many of the misunderstandings on the subject of heaven and provides a true, clear perspective on what those who know Jesus as Savior can anticipate for eternity. This series will challenge your thinking and provide an anticipation of heaven that perhaps you've never conceived before. So join Dr. Newfeld every Friday evening and Sunday afternoon for Truth and Life Today on Joy TV, on YouTube, or online at truthandlifetoday.com. And remember, 
If the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada have impacted you, consider supporting the ministry by calling 1-800-663-2425 or donating online at backtothebible.ca.